Proverbs 31, I'd like to begin at verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. This will be background for our sermon text, Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. Let's bear in mind that this is not the opinion of mere men or a mere man. This is the word of God. An excellent wife. Who can find? For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. And she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her her husband also. He praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the works of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. That we have as background to our sermon text today, verses 3 to 5 of Titus chapter 2. I'd like to read from the beginning of this second chapter. Paul writes to Titus there on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, but as for you, Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. Throughout history, one of the most damaging influences at work within the church, an influence that has undermined the church's witness to the nations, has been the trouble stirred up within herself from among the church's own members by those Paul describes in Titus 1.16 as those who profess to know God but by their deeds deny him. Simply put, actions speak louder than words. Yours do, mine do. And if there's a discrepancy between the Christianity that we speak and the Christianity that we practice, others can't help but notice that. And so with this discrepancy, we put the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ on a treadmill. The gospel goes on. It keeps running generation after generation. It's an awful lot of work. But it doesn't get anywhere. The word of God is drowned out by the behavior of his people. Now, you've met some of these self-contradicting people along life's way, just as I have. They say one thing, but they're, because actions speak louder than words, it's clear that they actually represent something very different from what they're speaking. They may say, for example, Jesus is Lord, and yet their detestable, disobedient, worthless lifestyles, here I'm using Paul's words, of verse 16, not my own. Their lifestyles make it clear he's not their Lord. Something else is Lord of their lives. Something else claims first allegiance in their hearts. It may be a love of money, may be a love of influence or convenience or pleasure, it might be anything. But whatever's claiming their first allegiance, it's not the love of Jesus. Holding to a form of godliness, having plenty of religion, they deny the power thereof. They deny the Jesus thereof. They're nominal Christians without any real intention 
of ever following Jesus, actually following Jesus. Not if religion per se gets them where they want to be. And Jesus had a very special word for these people, didn't he? You know what it is. He called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Tears growing up for a season alongside the good wheat. They're hypocrites. Men and women who, taking that Greek word literally, underjudge themselves. That's what a hypocrite is. They underjudge themselves, whatever they judge other people. Paul here in verse, verses 10 and 11 calls them rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who grieve the spirit and upset whole families. Friends, these are men in the church. They overturn these families and churches with their teaching. And so we naturally have to wonder exactly what it is they're teaching. What do they teach that brings whole families to ruin? It's certainly not the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. Now this gospel, the biblical gospel, may in fact divide families. It has ever since the beginning. And many of those here in this room today whose families have either risen upon or stumbled over the rock of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, we find Jesus telling us very plainly, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That much is sadly true until Jesus returns in glory. In this present age, the gospel either divides families along the fault lines of faith, or it unites and establishes them in a common faith and life. But the gospel doesn't upset families. It doesn't subvert them, in other words. It doesn't turn families upside down or ruin them wholesale as these pseudo-Christian teachers were doing and still do today. So what are these teachers teaching in the church instead of the gospel of Christ? What are these false doctrines that are upsetting whole families? Well, it can be anything. It really can be anything that falls short of the Christ of the Bible. The Christ around whose glorious person and saving work centers the whole counsel of God. Anything else 
Anything short of Jesus Christ as a central message misses the mark completely. The false gospel of secular humanism running so rampant around and through us today that so many don't even see it. It's ruining our families. And it happens to be the prevailing worldview in our culture. That is the cultural ocean in which we swim. And the fish are so unaware of it that we don't even know we're wet. It's doctrines of self-esteem, self-importance, at the expense of selfless service to others, ruins families by putting me and my wants and my needs and my expectations first. It's dependence on mere governments of mere men for the education of our children and providing for our daily bread through promises of job creation and so forth. It ruins families with a false hope. It's feminism, the pretended erasure of differences between men and women as if these differences have no bearing on our conduct. It's ruining families. None of these secular philosophies has the power to meet our deepest human needs, our deepest relational needs. They're a deception. They're a curse. But their power to captivate the human mind is obvious, isn't it? Because the Western world's largely gone over to them. How do they do it? How do these people captivate and slave the minds and behavior of so many? How do they end up overturning whole families and bring them to ruin? Well, first, on the strength of their own arbitrary opinion, they arbitrarily declare that the mountain of historical and literary evidence for the person and work of Jesus Christ isn't admissible. They just decide not to take it into consideration. Poof, it's gone. Why is it gone? Why can we not admit it into the argument for what life is all about, because we say so. And then in the place of the gospel that they've just ruled inadmissible as evidence, they tell us inspirational stories. They moralize, they philosophize, they flatter, they present these cleverly devised fables regarding the creation of the universe, regarding the origin of men regarding the nature of reality, and so on. Philosophical alternatives to the way, the truth, and the life as it is in Jesus. And typically they do this in a way that's either very entertaining or very intimidating. 
because both avenues of persuasion seem to work for the secular humanists. There are ways to make atheistic humanism seem very engaging. Even, and this may sound strange, but they can make it even sound inspirational. And if inspiration doesn't work, if the evolutionary ascent of man from the slime doesn't win over your thinking, they can always turn on the intellectual intimidation. They can turn on the academic bullying by citing the latest scientific research. So, professing to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for something infinitely less. Sweeping away truth well established both within them and around them, they set up these various religions and religious practices as add-ons to the fictional world they've constructed for themselves. And the tales they tell, the books they write, typically support some nice, clean, bloodless, philosophical system of man-made principles designed to capture the souls of weak men and take special note of this from 2 Timothy 3, verse 6. Capture the souls of weak women in their homes. And they do this for all kinds of sordid gain. Whatever may be the world market for true liberty in Christ, there will always be a market for license, a market for sin. Now, I sound like I'm berating other people, but the truth is this. We have all fallen for this, haven't we? We've all fallen for it. All of us were fools once. All of us were blind to the things of God. I once was there myself. I remember very clearly as a boy of about seven years old, telling my Unitarian father that I'd given it some thought and I decided that heaven is really just a state of mind at one's death. Nothing more. And I remember my dad's loving approval of my philosophic conclusions. But friends, it's not true. It's not true. It's an absolutely stupid idea. I was young and blind and foolish. I was spiritually dead and lost in my own intellectual pride at the age of seven. And it's only by the marvelous, life-giving, wisdom-imparting grace of God that I became a Christian before my 10th birthday. Only then could I begin to sing with all God's children the words of the 119th Psalm. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my study all the day. It makes me wiser than my foes. Its precepts with me stay. 
More than my teachers or the old, thy servant understands. Thy testimonies I consult and follow thy commands. We were all blind fools once, weren't we? We all measure truth by the sliding rule of our own personal opinion. But unlike the repentant Christian, these pseudo-Christian teachers take their natural folly and blindness not to the cross to be forgiven and changed. They take that false doctrine to the church pulpit and to the Sunday school and to the seminary classroom. Some of them have charisma and actually gain a following. Selling their self-help books gives them deeper pockets for an ever wider outreach. They build themselves crystal cathedrals and various other ministries and monuments named after themselves. To borrow the memorable words of the 73rd Psalm, they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. There's nowhere in the world they're not willing to travel for a fee to be somebody's conference speaker, much to the confusion and ruin, if it were possible, even of the children of God and their families. Against this background, all the sound and fury of unsaved men and women who want to teach, we find the Spirit of God everywhere in Scripture, not only in our text today, but everywhere in Scripture, exhorting the Christian, but as for you, speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. It's sound biblical doctrine that brings us to Christ, sound biblical doctrine that guards our souls, sound biblical doctrine that trains us in living to please God, sound biblical doctrine establishes our families and defines our respective places within them. And I would just add this too, sound biblical doctrine in the home is what makes that home not only livable, but fun. It is fun to grow up in a Christian family, in a Christian home. Now, this has been a very long introduction, but today I want to draw your special attention to Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, and speak on what it is to grow old in grace as a woman, or if you're not a woman, what it is to support the women you know and love as they grow old in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is something very, very special, I should even call it sacred, about women and their relationships with one another. Women have immense power. 
Women have immense power, a power at least equal to that of men, either for building or destroying the home and the church. And I say this not only on the strength of my own observations, although they certainly bear that out, but I tell you this on the strength of biblical testimony. If God created man out of the dust of the earth and then created the woman out of the man, that means the woman is twice removed from the earth, isn't she? Twice refined, twice precious. And twice, therefore, the desirable target back in the Garden of Eden for the serpent's spoiling work. A weaker vessel, certainly, as the Apostle Peter said, but weaker only as the porcelain teacup is weaker than your everyday mug. And all of you men, when I speak about an everyday mug, you know what I'm talking about. You have one of these. Your everyday coffee mug. It gets lots of use. It gets no respect. You treat your everyday coffee mug however you want to. You leave it overnight at the work site. You let it roll around on the floorboards of your car or truck for a few days. You run it through the dishwasher when you're done. Your everyday coffee mug has permanent stains and chips. Doesn't matter. Break off a handle. Still holds coffee. All that's well and good for the everyday coffee mug. But brothers, watch how you handle the porcelain teacup. And I say this not only because it's right in itself to treat women of all ages with special honor, but also because by doing so, we reinforce the particular characteristics God delights to see in them. Satan's the father not only of lies generally, but of the spiritual abuse of women in particular. Genesis 3 gives us history's earliest example of this. Satan takes advantage of Eve's place in the home. He takes advantage of her natural vulnerability. Satan doesn't come first to Adam, does he? But to Eve. And once he upsets the order of the home, her life and that of her family would never again be the same. But godliness is the fruit of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine disabuses us of Satan's lie. It begins to untangle the sinfully tangled mind about who God is and what duties he requires of us as men and women. Some of these duties appear in Titus 2, 3 to 5. More still appear as characteristics of the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. 
And reading of her, it comes as no surprise that her husband rises up blessing her. Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Now I realize, of course, that Proverbs 31 and our passage today and the letter to Titus and 1 Peter 3, to which I've already made reference, these all speak to married women in particular, and a number of you younger ladies and girls among us aren't yet married. But let me suggest to you two things to retain your interest in these matters of sound doctrine applied to Christian womanhood, whether you're married or not. First of all, it's as an expression of devotion to Christ in the first place, not devotion to a husband, that these characteristics are precious to God. If you someday marry, and you either are or become the woman described in these verses, your future husband will be the happy beneficiary of your conscientious prior training, but he won't be the cause of it. He can't be the cause of it. He's in no position to be the cause of it. No matter how much you may love him, dear sister in the Lord, the fact is that it's not within his power to make you a godly woman. So our frame of reference isn't that of attracting and pleasing a husband. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. It is the Lord Jesus Christ you serve. So please don't wait for your wedding day to begin your quest for a specifically feminine godliness. The time to begin learning what that means and putting it into practice was actually years ago, back when you were a very little girl. For those of you who are still very little girls, the time is now. Now is when you begin to learn the value of love and of teamwork and of self-sacrifice in the home. But for those of you who are older, if you didn't start back then, back when you were a little girl, thanks be to God, he's able to restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. He's able to restore to you the feminine virtues that our culture and our public schools and everyone else out there has tried so hard to thresh out of you. I don't mean to minimize the effect of these influences on our thinking. Transformation by the renewal of our minds can be a very long road back for some women. But my point is that whatever your past may be, the day to begin your quest for biblical femininity is today, this very moment as you have your Bible open before you on your lap. So first remember that this is about pleasing God, 
not about pleasing a husband. A second motive for receiving sound doctrine in godly femininity, whether you're married or not, is this. You may be surprised someday to discover how very little marriage changes people. If you're wise from the outset, and if God so blesses, you'll learn to appreciate and love one another very much, flaws included, and that's a very good thing. But you won't dramatically change one another. There's nothing automatic, there's nothing even particularly easy about loving your husband or loving your children or working at home or being sensible or any of these other things. So the time to begin learning is now, before marriage, when you can experience all the failures you need to experience and the stakes are still relatively low. On your wedding day, those stakes rise exponentially. All right. Enough with the caveats. Time to delve into the passage, and we're almost out of time. So we're going to continue this next week. But first, let me reinforce this. Sound biblical doctrine is for the whole church, young and old, male and female. This doctrine of Christ crucified, risen, and reigning when applied to the mind and heart by the Holy Spirit, it produces (coughs) in the church a commonly shared godliness but without the bland social uniformity of communism or feminism or any other worldview that falls short of robust biblical Christianity. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ never made a Jew out of a Gentile. That's the whole point of the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. It's the whole point of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Jewish Christians retain their Jewishness in Christ, and as for their part, Gentiles need not, should not, must not, become Jews through circumcision in order to gain admittance into the kingdom of heaven. That is the work of Christ, Christ alone, that brings us in. In a similar way, The New Testament leads us to believe that Christian masters remain masters still. Christian slaves remain slaves still. Even as both parties, master and slave, become new men and brothers in Christ. Regardless of our social or economic status, the gospel transforms both ourselves and the character of the relationships that we're in. With respect to these gender distinctions, 
The gospel doesn't turn men into women, doesn't turn women into men. Rather, what the gospel does is enable us through Christ finally, truly, and thoroughly to become the men and women that we should have been all along. Several features of the relationship between older and younger women in the church are worth special notice. First, look at the order in which Paul lists the church's various social groups. Women are neither at the beginning nor at the end. The women are in the middle. Old men, old women, Young women, young men. Now, why Paul chose to arrange it this way, I don't know. There may be some poetic reason for it, gallantry or whatever. I rather doubt it. Chivalry is fine, and it makes life a little more pleasant all around to keep women protected in the middle. But Paul's purpose here has to do with training training. And this is the arrangement that supports Paul's purpose. It drives home the crucial role of training the hearts and hands that are going to rock the church's cradle, cradles, till Christ comes again in glory. Women are in the middle. Nothing that the church does is more important for her long-term life and witness to the nations. Men tend to think otherwise. At least they often do. But don't women know this instinctively, that what husbands and fathers do for income is a matter of relative unimportance. What mothers do in the home is a sacred legacy that's passed on from one generation to the next. Second, we should notice that old women have a position not only of special honor, but special responsibility in the church. Not only because they're older, but specifically because they're women. You can't delegate this responsibility to the men in the pulpit or the men teaching Sunday school. You can't delegate it to husbands. You can't delegate it to fathers or brothers in the home. I can tell you what the Bible says about femininity. But it's beyond my power to model it for you. I've never been there. Never done that. I have no first-hand knowledge of the trials and temptations unique to womanhood. But among you, dear congregation of the Lord, among you are Christian women who do know these things firsthand. You've succeeded and you've failed 
and you've laughed and you've cried through years, sometimes decades, of following Jesus Christ as a woman. And that makes you a living, breathing, gold mine of wisdom to girls who are trying to find their way in life. A third painfully obvious fact is that this biblical model of femininity is about 180 degrees out from the ones our lost world offers. A woman who resolves in her heart to practice thoroughly biblical womanhood, a practice firmly rooted in the truths of creation and devotion to Christ, not cultural relativism, Sadly, that woman has to be prepared to take some very hard hits for it. Why did the apostle tell Christian wives in 1 Peter 3, 6, Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Why would he put it that way? What's there to be afraid of? What could possibly be fearful in a wife's glad self-surrender to her own husband? Well, maybe her husband's an unbeliever. So what if he is? After all, that's the very situation that Peter's addressing in chapter 3. Does she think her unbelieving husband's going to take advantage of her? That gentle and quiet spirit of loving him and loving their children is the very means God intended for her to win him over. Now what intimidates her? Then as now, what intimidates the godly wife are the expectations of the culture round about her. It's that gnawing worry that her godless friends and neighbors won't stand for it, that they'll mock her, scorn her, make fun of her behind her back for the way she behaves, the way she dresses, the way she reverences her husband. She doesn't go out and party with them like she used to, that they'll call her a fool, that they'll call her a relic of the Dark Ages, Those who think a wife's submission to her own husband and a husband's special, unique, sacrificial love for his own wife to be something weird, something slavish. That's the worldview that unfortunately owns Western culture here at the dawn of the third millennium. And it's very easygoing, very tolerant, of any lifestyle that comes along, isn't it? Well, it is tolerant to a degree until it comes across the sweet domestic harmony of biblical Christianity. That's got to go. No wonder families are falling apart. We mock 
our own standards of success. We throw ourselves down by the side of the road and we scorn the finish line of the well-run race. But as for us, beloved, let sound doctrine have its way in the church. Let's give the Bible free reign that older women might be reverent, no longer enslaved to the luxurious misbehaviors of the lost world. Let your good works in Christ match your good profession of him. And for the glory of God and for the sake of families yet unborn, let the older women surround and embrace and love and train for Christ the girls and young ladies for whom they carry such an awesome responsibility. Ladies, this is your great commission. It must be done. And there is no one else, not your fathers, not your brothers, not your elders, not your pastor, no one else who can do it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of counsel and admonition that we find written on the pages of Scripture. We ask that you would work in us by your Spirit in such a way that these things would be driven home to us, that we would recognize the beauty of the distinctions among us, that we would recognize the complementary beauty of male and female, and that we would see our masculinity or our femininity as an avenue of submission to Jesus Christ. Help us to understand these things, to reflect on them. And we pray that you would be glorified in your church as your spirit moves us and transforms us by the renewing of our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.